Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. Well, a common situation uh, that all of us have probably have experienced, you know, the majority of us have probably have experienced at some point in our lives is applying for a job. We maybe have, uh, those experiences look different to different people, uh, but you know, depending on the actual job itself, the interview process may actually even look different than some other jobs on how you got it. Perhaps, maybe if you're uh, uh, 16, just entering the workforce for the first time, maybe it's an entry level position at whatever place it may be, Perhaps that or that interview process will look like this. You just walk in, the supervisor takes this kind of a look at you, and then the only thing's out of his mouth is, do you have a heartbeat? Yeah? All right, the job is yours. No question on who you are, if you're going to be a good employee at all, or what your visions or your goals are. You see, in that scenario, that guy just needs someone to stand there and do this. That's what they need. Then there are different types of jobs that maybe the interview process is very competitive and very intense. And if you're, in this case, the interviewer trying to find someone, you have to come up with the right questions. Many of us have been in that position, I'm sure. The right questions and the interviewee has to have, of course, what? The right answers. That's how this thing works. Now, for decades, the most common go-to question in job interviews has been, what are your greatest strengths and your greatest weaknesses? These are the two most common things ever asked. Now, now we know how that's going to end, right? When someone asks us that question. The person being interviewed is going to spend the answers to make sure him or her always look good no matter what. Well, my greatest strength uh, is that I'm 100% committed to my job, reliable and always ready for more. And my greatest weakness is maybe I'm, I'm too passionate about what I do. All right. Now, the reality is, is that all of us have weaknesses. We're not all good at everything. It's not possible. God didn't design us that way. The scripture says we're not that way. But we will spin the truth a little bit to always make sure we look good. Now that is human nature. You see, truth is something that can always be spun. Now, for the next two weeks... We're going to be looking at 2 John, a very short book, very short. Actually, it's only one chapter. Now, you may be sitting there right now thinking, now, if it's only one chapter, if it's this short, how can there possibly be two sermons? Oh, 
Captain, we'll find a way. <laughs> we will make this happen, I promise. No, I'm kidding. That Second John, the reason why is it covers two main themes in this one chapter. The two themes that he covers is truth and love. The book itself, 2 John, is found toward the end of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation. The name of the book, 2 John, comes from the fact that this is the second epistle, the second letter that John himself wrote. Now, though it is short, there are some very fascinating things to learn from this book. Now, the first thing is that the authorship the one who wrote the book, is indeed given to John. Now, when the letter was written, when, when, when that letter was discovered or handed to the count or whatever, the author did not title this Second John. He didn't say Second John and wrote this letter. That was something that we did years later. We named it that. In fact, John's name isn't mentioned anywhere in this entire book. But the early church gave authorship to John because, and here it is, why we call it Second John is because of the writing style and content of the letter. You see, scripture verses such as Second John chapter 5 was compared to 1 John 2, 7 and John 13, 34 through 35 to confirm that John was the author of this letter. It was just too similar, the way they write. And why and how they were able to do this was because John contributed several books, letters that made it into the actual New Testament, five to be exact. There was enough content to review, to compare, to look at. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation itself. Now, unlike most of the other authors in the New Testament, those who already written their letters and their books and their, their history and their notes, John waited to write his books, his letters, until almost the end of his life. He didn't do it right away. He didn't jump on it. He waited and wrote them all within the last few years of his life. The Gospel of John was released almost 20 years after Luke and Matthew, and almost 30 years after Mark. His writings are also the last to be written in the entire Bible. With the Gospel written around 85 AD, his epistles were written around 90 AD, including this book, and Revelation being the last book to be written in the Bible around 95 AD. Now let me put this into perspective as I was studying and looking at this. That if I put it in perspective to world history, John was writing his books just as the construction of the now famous Roman Colosseum was being finished. A place that you and I can still visit today. And John would have seen it freshly built as he was finishing his letters and notes. Now, John lived a very good and long life. It's believed that he was well into his 90s when he wrote this letter. Tradition has it 
that he was the last disciple to die. And now by the time of the writing of 2 John, by the time he penned this down, this is what's happened so far. John has seen Paul beheaded in Rome, Peter crucified upside down on the cross, Thomas stabbed to death, Philip put to death for converting the wife of a Roman proconsul. Andrew was crucified at the cross, Matthew was stabbed to death, Bartholomew was martyred, James was stoned to death, Simon was killed for not sacrificing to the Persian sun god, and Matthias, the apostle that replaced Judas in Acts 2, was burned to death. And now John is the last one. It is believed that John himself planted, planted in Ephesus, and he took care of Mary, Jesus' mother, until she passed away. See, he had a goal, a purpose that Jesus left to him, take care of my mother. And perhaps that, maybe that, what we just experienced and seen through all the disciples is why this particular letter starts so vague. It's completely vague, the whole letter is. You'll notice that this letter starts with what, at least when I was reading it, what looks like code words or code names. He starts the letter by addressing himself as the elder. Now, from all of my studies, this name choice, the elder, is not a reference to an office or a position held such as the elder of a church. Instead, it is believed that he is referencing his old age, that he was the old guy, the 90-something that was writing this letter. He, he approaches this letter as, a, as an old man that may have a few words to share of wisdom. Then he follows to who he is writing the letter to. It just says, the elder. And then the next verse, the next line in the letter says, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. Now, you can imagine that my mind immediately went to what woman? Which woman? What children? Whose children? Who are, who is the, who are these people? And I thought, well, maybe perhaps it would spill it out a little bit later in the letter. If I keep reading it, it'll, it'll make it clear on who. Nope, it doesn't. Doesn't specify anything about who is addressed to. So who is the woman? Who are her children? Now, what I found was interesting. Though there are indeed scholars that do believe that he was and may have been writing this letter to a specific woman, the vast majority, the overwhelmingly majority, believe that he wasn't writing to a woman at all. You see, we just went through what John has experienced in his life already, that each of his friends who followed Jesus have been killed. Following Jesus is dangerous. Rome has made Christianity illegal. You are either going to go to prison or you will be put to death. And scholars believe that the current Roman emperor at this specific time, Emperor Titus, 
had absolutely no tolerance for Christians. Therefore, it is accepted that John, in this letter, was indeed writing in code to keep everyone safe. There are no names, you will notice, listed in the entire document. Not a single name. So who is the chosen lady? Who are her children? Ah, to answer that question, we have to go back to when John was following Jesus some 50 to 60 years before. Jesus was teaching the disciples about fasting, the time to do it, the proper way to do it. And in his lesson, Jesus referred to himself, to the disciples, he referred to himself as the bridegroom of the church. And that imagery must have stuck with John because he uses it again right here in 2 John. That the lady here is indeed the church, the bride of Christ. Her children are its members. But why chosen? Why add that word in there? Again, John calls back something that Jesus said and something that he included, that John included in his own gospel when he wrote it. When Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you, the chosen. And in order to keep both the author and the audience safe, in case this letter got confiscated by a Roman official, he used imagery that only a believer would know. And instead of writing to the church of Ephesus, he wrote to the chosen lady and her children. Now then, then John uses a word that he has used in every single one of his writings. It pops up in every one. In fact, he has used this word 37 times in all of his writings. The word has become synonymous to John. His writings have always been the source that the church has gone to when we have misaligned ourselves from this word. And that word that John references is truth. John gives us truth. He writes to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Now, does this writing, when I, when I read it out loud, maybe when you read it yourself, does it feel a little familiar? Now, maybe you don't know these exact verses, you know, 2 Second John. But as revealed earlier, John has a writing style that we see repeated. We see this exact style of writing in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. When he wrote, the word became flesh. It made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. See, as believers, truth isn't subjective. It's a person. Truth is a person. Jesus is truth. All definitions, all characteristics, all moral compasses for truth start with Jesus Christ. What binds us together as believers aren't social, political, or even class compatibilities with one another. This isn't what bonds us. This isn't what brings us together. We aren't together now because we all have the same political beliefs or the same social status or or, or class lifestyle. What binds us together is that we all believe that truth is a person. And when we are divided as believers, when we can't see eye to eye on politics, when we can't see eye to eye on the science, when we can't see eye to eye on mandates, we are looking at the wrong place for truth. The church as a whole has been looking at the wrong place for it, in my opinion, for the last few years. Instead of trying to prove that our side is the truth, that our side is the way, I'm afraid that that type of dialogue that we found in these last two years of shutdowns, mask mandates, vaccines, and science, or fill in the blank or whatever, is creating a division of two different truths within the church. Pastors right now are resigning at an all-time record high in recent history of the church. Small churches and some really big ones are closing for good. They're not reopening. Our country is becoming more and more agnostic by the day. And I have to believe. I have to believe this is because the church has gotten off alignment. We've been misaligned. We started to see truth as subjective and have forgotten that truth was a person. The only truth, the only truth that your captain can give you in this very divided world is this. For God so loved this divided world, he gave his only son for it. This is the truth. Now, go and tell them. Because either they don't believe or they don't know. I want the headlines to read. Church shows the world what unity looks like today. So what is your truth? What is your truth? Are you misaligned? Or maybe a question that popped in my head when I was writing and preparing is have these last two years hardened your heart? Has your heart grown hard over these last couple years? There's just so many voices. There's so much yelling. There's so much mess. Has your heart grown hard? 
Have you, are you not even able to look at your neighbor and even see that Jesus died for them? Could this be true? And do you need God maybe just to soften the heart a little bit? John speaks about truth in this letter. And truth can only be found in Jesus. Don't go to anyone else for it. Don't even go to me. Go to him, to Jesus Christ. For he will set you free. He will set you free. He will set you free. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.